Welcome to the Barry Sachs Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sachs Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes, and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Dutch saxophonist Arno Bornkamp is the archetype of the modern virtuoso, feeling equally at home in traditional and contemporary repertoire. Hailed as a lyrical musician with a great sense of performance, Arno has studied at the Sweenly Conservatory in Amsterdam with Ed Berger. He's won many awards, the Silver Laurel of the Concertabau and the Netherlands Music Prize amongst the most noteworthy. The latter enabled him to go abroad, studying in France with Daniel Defeye, Jean-Marie Londex, in Japan with Rio Noda, as well as working with composers such as Luciana Berio and Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. Since his 1982 solo debut in Rome, performing the Concertino de Camera by Jacques Hibert, he has played more than 200 concerts with orchestras around the world, including the most important works from the saxophone repertoire, in addition to new concerti written especially for him, such as the Tallahatchie Concerto by Jakob TV. In addition to his solo career, chamber music is one of Arno's great loves. For over 35 years, Arno was a member of the Aurelia Saxophone Quartet and his duo with pianist Ivo Janssen existed almost as long. The many CDs he has made on various labels since 1990 have garnered national and international praise. On some of these recordings, Arno has taken a certain period of saxophone history and put it under the microscope. On others, he highlights a specific composer. Being one of the most important personalities of saxophone in the world, Arno took the initiative to create Sax 14, a huge multidisciplinary saxophone festival in Amsterdam in November 2014, celebrating the 200th birthday of Adolf Sax. Arno is a renowned teacher, leading an international saxophone class at the Conservatory of Amsterdam. Please welcome my guest today, Dutch saxophonist Arno Bornkamp. Arno, thank you for coming today. Very welcome. Much. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> And cheers. I <laughs> know. Oh, I'd love to know how you got started, please, on the saxophone. Uh, that's a nice story. <laughs> um, I was 18 years old and I played already the clarinet for some years, but it was not so very successful. I started to listen to jazz when I was six, 15, 16, uh, maybe Dixieland also, and then the clarinet is logic. But then I started to hear saxophones and uh, in that uh, same music, of course. And I, I thought, I felt, maybe I didn't even think, but I felt that that was a good instrument. Um, and then I was playing in a, in a jazz band at the high school uh, with some classmates. And uh, one guy came in that group who was actually younger than me. He was a clarinet player and he got a tenor saxophone for his 16th birthday or something. And in one week he could play really decent on that instrument because he, was, he had a very good pre-education. And then I thought, so it's so easy. If you play the clarinet more or less, then you can just very easily go in this great tenor saxophone. 
I was 17 years old and then I asked my father and my mother, mainly my father, can I please have a, a tenor saxophone for my birthday, 18th birthday. Maybe also as a final exam, high school uh, present. And then uh, they had to swallow a few times because it's very ex was already very expensive. I think the, the official price was 2,700 guilders. It's the equivalent of maybe 1,300 euro. So already in 1978, it's kind of a lot of money. Um, and the, the guy in the band had a, a Selmer and he said, you should buy a Selmer. <clears throat> so my father went to Paris for, for his job. And he went to uh, Le Ménétrier, maybe you remember that shop in Paris, uh, near the Rue de Madrid. And uh, he, uh, he just asked for a tenor saxophone and he brought that instrument and he had to bring it um, through customs um, on the border with the car, just uh, to, to make sure that uh, he could keep the price low because the price in France was 1,900 guilders. So we got a cheap tenor saxophone, which I still play. You still play the same instrument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. just the neck has changed because the neck has been damaged. So that was the, the, the tenor that I always played in the quartet. And uh, yeah, so, and that's how it started. And I wanted to, be, to, to become a jazz player, but I'm amateur. Uh, I wasn't thinking about anything professional because I was really kind of bad at, in music school. And then I went to study for social geography in Amsterdam. I lived in The Hague before. And a friend of mine was um, a flutist, like amateur flutist, and studied uh, psychology, but he did the pre-education year of the conservatory just to have lessons. And, um, and because I didn't have any lessons anymore, I thought maybe this is the, the perfect way to get lessons. But I didn't know how to approach music school in Amsterdam. And this was kind of a, this looked like something that I could maybe try. So after one year of geography, I went to that, uh, I applied. And for clarinet and saxophone clarinet, I didn't go. And then for saxophone, I got admitted. But I played on a Berglarsen 115. I played Autumn Leaves and a Sunny Moon for Two. And maybe a Vocalise by Roussel, because that was on the list. And a few closet studies. But... <laughs> with that kind of sound but they still heard something musical although i didn't have any lessons on sex i never had lessons on saxophone so you were accepted for your potential we had ed bogaert then as a, as a teacher in amsterdam and he was very good in thinking out of the box he could there was no cultural saxophone at all so he just took anyone that sounded sort of decent and you and maybe totally rough but you never know. And then in a very short time, uh, I got to know people in the class. I, I learned about classical saxophone. I didn't know that that existed. And um, so I started to hear all those pieces and I started to like it. And then I made very, very big leaps and bought an alto and yeah, got totally fascinated and obsessed. And, and then something opened up, some windows, you know, in my musical perception. And uh, yeah, in, in two years, I played Iber with orchestra and things like that. It was a, that was kind of weird to, to, to be a, a witness of myself, <laughs> myself you know. So yeah. like your friend, you, you proved one of two things, either the saxophone is very easy or you're very talented. <laughs> I think that um, 
well, yeah, I, I always say that I'm not talented, but that I want it so much. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I could I could feel that suddenly, and I, I didn't had have to deal anymore with what I had to deal before about like accidentals. I, I could never remember on the clarinet F sharps, and you know it was it's a very complicated instrument, and on saxophone it's like because it's in octaves. It it is more easy to to imagine and i did all this jazz i was that was the, th the first thing i did so i i was like in these chords changes and doing something totally on my own but then i understood how music works and how accidentals work and how uh, chord progression works and then actually the whole thing kind of opened up and i could kind of because i liked the voice of this instrument it was my voice I could immediately uh, effectuate that on, on, in, in classical music, but very roughly. It took a long time to, to, to polish. So when did the refinement come? Maybe after two or three years. Yeah. Uh, doing this Iber was great because I, I really loved that piece and I, I, I learned it and, and I listened to Defayette. Defayette was my, my hero. So I could, um, yeah, the, it's like you learn a language and then if there's a very good example it's kind of you don't have to think about what or how to do it you just do what you what you you do it on in an imitation way um and i think that yeah that that was funny and then i, I had problems with breathing i had problems with the fingerings but because of doing it it just went away and that helped a lot for other things but my my progress was really really bumpy and you know rocky and what helped you decide to study abroad with the teachers yeah. outside away from home yeah well i um i was doing the normal path in amsterdam uh, we we didn't call it bachelor or master it was different but kind of similar grades and um then it seemed that education stopped and I felt uh, um, th there was a hole in front of me, like, uh, I don't know, like, what, what now? I'm, I, I think I have to learn more. So I, then I, I, I applied for a grant with Defayette for one year. I never w lived in Paris, but I went and came, came back, aller retour, every month, a few days, and then one or two lessons, m mostly one. And the lessons were really short, like one hour and 15 minutes. And we did three pieces, at least. He was like, <laughs> and I just wanted to, not just, I wanted to study with him because of his sound, because of his musicality and of his musical mentality that I heard in his playing. Also because of Paris, of course, that's kind of the magic city. And also to, to feel the adventure of doing that. And uh, yeah, uh, going outside the country, not, not just because of that, but, yeah, the adventure and the other culture and you who knows who you meet there you know all these kind of things but living i have never considered doing like what you did in bordeaux i i had already quartet i had girlfriend uh job i was already teaching in in in, uh, in, in a conservatory so i didn't want to give that up you I have a lot of foreign students who come to study with you. Yeah. How important do you think it is for students to travel away from home? Uh, that's a good question. There's a, there's a lot of um, 
yeah, as aspects on that. Um, I can see that if they do that, if they take that decision, they are very motivated. They have to organize funding. They have to, uh, well, of course, make a choice where to go. Uh, hopefully, they, they go for a musical and artistic choice and not for a calculation choice, which also sometimes happens. Um, and then I think it, the other positive thing is that they learn to take care of themselves and to not uh, rely on uh, the pasta of mama, for instance, or the paella of papa, <laughs> or whatever. I don't know what you have in, the, in, the, in Australia as a, as a local uh, f uh, food. Uh, I don't know, but yeah, they have to do that on their own. They have to create a new network. They have to work in another system. Maybe they have to learn a language, maybe. Um, and find a new cultural atmosphere and take advantage of that. And that's very important, especially in a, in a city like Amsterdam, there is so much to find. And if you can, if they can find an agreement with what they do in school, with, with what's happening on the street, architecture, museums, Concertgebouw Orchestra, uh, uh, red light district, you know, it's all kind of a holistic thing. And that's why I think we have a certain atmosphere in Amsterdam, in Paris, in Berlin. They are all different because the city is different. But when they stay on their own way they, and, and they don't take this city thing, then it's not working so well. So they have to get out of the practice room and yes, also yes. live. Sometimes um, I do, in the beginning of the year, I do an architectural walk through Amsterdam. I have a friend of mine is a project initiator for, um, uh, you know, um, new areas. And he knows a lot about that. So then he brings us through the city and showing new projects or old ones. So that they already kind of feel the, 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 the air of the city. And uh, maybe sometimes they also have a bit of fear or they want to be in school because they have to do so many things and they just don't go for other stuff. But I think it's very important to, to take that, uh, that element of environment with the playing and the lessons that they have. And then you get a certain well, style or way of thinking. And I think that is very good. So you're saying the experiences we have in life are reflected in the performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the more experiences you have, then I guess the more rich your playing could be. Yes, of course they have to also focus. Mm. Is um, you know the, there is a um, there's a, a few things that they have to do in order to effectuate their experiences. But I think it's um, it's a very important thing. Yeah, and that is for foreign students. It's a must. Why, why you why you do it otherwise? You know. Um, also for for my like uh, how you call it uh, Dutch people. I don't have a lot of Dutch. Yeah, but it's also good to be in Amsterdam because it's really totally different than where they come from. It's really a, a different kind of atmosphere. Um, I think there could be a negative aspect, and that is they. they create groups, they create quartets, 
and then they are like multi-international, multinational quartets. And then after some time, and they may they are maybe successful. But then what? If people want to go back to their own countries because they want to start another kind of life connected with saxophone, but yeah, that, that jeopardizes the quartet. And and I had we had that in Amsterdam with the Ebonit saxophone quartet, which is incredibly successful, winning everything, like playing almost every day. They they knew how to get concerts, but now two people have left because of yeah maybe different life path, and now the group doesn't know what to do anymore. And they were, I've never had such a successful group of students, and that that's a negative aspect. It's maybe not so easy to stay as a multinational quartet to stay in in one place and to. To find a living and maybe teaching or gigging and and then doing the quartet as a main thing is almost never happens. Was it difficult to stop your quartet after yeah. so many years? Yeah. Was that a big decision? Yeah, yeah, that was a big decision. And um, but I, when I speak about the quartet, it's like there is not one quartet. Of course, it has always had the same name, but. When we were like starting, we were rookies, young, wild animals with saxophones, <laughs> you know, doing things out of almost out of sense of humor, just like, hey, what's happening now? We win a competition. Hey, what's happening? We, we, play, we, we play a transcription of Gershwin. Oh, just, we were always kind of excusing ourselves for doing good things in a way. And, um, and then it became more serious, and then we got this kind of career and CDs and tours and everything. And then after the first person left in 2000, Andre Irons, first our first, ah, you know, Andre he came to Australia. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah he he was speaking highly about what you did for him and what what happened. And then uh, the, this kind of I would call that uh, adventure book sort of closed because it was not the same people anymore. And um, then we had to survive in another way. That became more like a business model. Well, we have to keep the thing going. And Niels came. Now, you know Niels, of course. And he's an incredibly good guy and loyal person. And he immediately um, found his, his, his place in the group. But it was different. And, um, of course, then our quartet changed also. We, we could keep the same musical uh, and artistic uh, approach. But maybe the things that we did before, like all playing all these pieces from memory, this kind of, uh, yeah, without any um, condition, going for the Holy Grail, that was maybe a little less. Because also uh, he, he lives kind of far, so we couldn't rehearse maybe so much anymore. Did still a very good project around Bach with the, the Art of Fugue and uh, the new fugues. Almost, almost an Edison. Almost, uh, we, we got a nomination for a, 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 a sort of a grand disque, grand gala du disque, prix, prix de grand gala du disque or something. Yeah, but then it's maybe kind of the momentum sort of disappeared, and we couldn't. I think we still played good, but we couldn't make people believe that it 
that Aurelia was still young and fresh. I think they thought it is an old name and yeah, it's fine. It's like a Rolls Royce. Mm -hmm. You like to see them, but you don't want to drive them. Or, uh, and especially you don't want to buy them. But it's nice to see them, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, finally, um, Willem and, uh, and Johan left. And then Femke, you know Femke, and uh, Juan Manuel, they came in, two of my former students. So then it was like, yeah, three of my former students and myself. And so you know, the blood is the same. It, 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 everything works musically, but maybe but the momentum too much gone. So then we had to decide last year to stop. And for me, I've, I then I felt it was very hard because I had to to close that book, like 35 years of quartet. But then the more strong memory is of the beginning. Because then it's like what you discover. And we didn't play very good, maybe. Maybe we played great at the end with this the last group of people. And we had very good communication and everything. But that the this kind of, oh, we discover. And, and like the, the surprise of, of everything that happened to us that that was not there anymore and that was the thing that i remembered more this creation of of things and johan starting to to do all these transcriptions and that it worked and then we opened really i think that we opened something new for saxophone quartets into in the whole world like doing Debussy and ravel the things that you dream of but that nobody really dared to do and we just start to do that we, I think we didn't we didn't have the fear. We just wanted to do it incredibly good. So, uh, and I think you can still hear that it's is done with the, the utmost, yeah, with without any condition and doing like hundreds changes of arrangements till it's good. Every time again, you never seem afraid of tradition. You're always willing to try something new. Yes, I think that was what we. Especially in this first 15 years, what we did. Yeah, yeah. And of course, then at some point, it's also really difficult to find new things to do because you are, you have your, your bucket list and this and that and this and then new, new pieces. Of course, a lot of composers writing for us and, uh, Louis Andriessen, Facing Death, that we, that he described that the, the piece for the Kronos Quartet and the String Quartet and you know, all these kind of things also connected to that. And, um, but then, yeah, it's kind of the thing that you want to do because you think that they have to be done. Then you, you get a bit yeah, out of that collection. And then you are going to do things that, you, that can be done, but you maybe don't want so badly as the other thing before. And then it starts to be like a, a little problem of, uh, of repertoire. I am in regular contact with Perry Goldstein. Yes, of course, he's, and, he's publishing, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I stayed with him in New York uh, for a while and uh, he helped me out. And we had a good exchange, actually. Um, I asked him while I was writing a piece if he could have a look at it each day and give me some feedback because I've never studied composition. So I was a bit nervous about getting some, some notes and he was excellent at that. And the exchange was I would help him make a website. <laughs> so a very funny exchange. Yeah. Well, we had a great time. But he talked a lot about your quartet and, um, and of course, some of the social times that go along with touring and things. And that seemed to be an important part of the group as well, the social bond yeah. that allowed you to, to stay together. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, and um, we all had our roles, you know. It's, um, I don't know, Willem is the, the, the funny guy. Uh, uh, always, uh, you know, telling stories and a little bit crazy. And André, well, what was André? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's difficult to describe that. Uh, Johan was actually our leader, really. Maybe I was just, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I was maybe not so much like a leader in the court that maybe on stage yes I could give drive but in, in our social things maybe not too much was but working with composers a big part not just in your chamber music yeah. but a, as a yeah. soloist as well has that been a really big part of yeah. your life yes um, but not it's not that I've, I find myself being a specialist on that I do it as, as maybe you heard also with Willem now again and and uh, with the two uh, composers that I played the day before yesterday, Pete Schwertz and Felipe Salia. So I'm starting to do it more and more again. Um, and in the beginning of my career was more was maybe more the case, yeah. But then at some point I started to do other projects like the Adolf Sax with the old old saxophones and other historical things and teaching a lot. And then it's maybe not always possible to create like um, a situation to play the new pieces because you can write some, uh, you can ask someone to write something, but where where to play that? And um, I think that was also maybe some a sign in our quartet that we didn't do that so much anymore, that maybe the, the energy was flooding away a little bit. Do you think there's something that makes a composition last and endure so that it gets played again and again and again? Is there a quality in a piece or some reason that some music sticks and some music gets played once? It's a very difficult question. There is, of course, a reason, but I'm not sure if it's a reason. Maybe there are 100 million reasons. I think that a composer has to have a good idea. He needs to have the skill and um, also how to know how to write for the instrument. Of course, for you is kind of simple, although can also be tricky. And for Willem, the same thing. You know, he he knows maybe sometimes too well what is possible. Huh? Uh, um, feeling for for shape, for form. I think that's very important. And writing the right notes at the right place. <laughs> you know Louis Andriessen, composer from Holland? Well, that's, he's kind of a Stravinsky adept, but then uh, with a lot of other influences, minimal music and uh, a lot of stuff. And he, he made kind of the new style, like the, the Hague School, and it's really about writing the right notes. And that's, and that's, that's a skill, you know. You have to write the right notes at the right moment. And, and that I'm not sure if you can explain that, what it is. Beethoven could do it, Mozart, and it's like, they, they know form, they know phrasing, harmony, rhythm. If you don't uh, uh, control that stuff, then why, why would you compose, you know? You should be able to do that, I think. Well, but it's not a condition. But then there are also composers like Jacob TV, who is maybe not controlling all these elements, but he has such an imagination and such a feeling for what the society wants and how he can 
make his music connect to society, that he writes also very good music. But maybe sometimes we can say little things about the rhythm or about harmony or whatever. Yeah. So it, it's not only one way that leads to Rome. Yeah, why? Yeah, I don't know. It's also sometimes a luck. You have to be lucky that the, the piece is heard or the piece is chosen. Or sometimes we, we find old pieces in that, hey, why no, nobody was playing that, you know? The Hot Sonata, for instance. That's a piece that maybe a lot of time has been not been played. And a lot of people start to play more and more. I already played that piece from the beginning of my study. And, and then at some point, suddenly it's there, all bright. I don't like the piece, but it, it, the piece is played all over the place, you know? And in the 80s and the 90s, we were like, <laughs> come on, the crux on that. The, the mule, mm, Londex, oh, you know, you know Londex, right? The crux is like too sweet and yeah. everybody's playing that now. So, and I personally, I don't find that very good music. It's sweet, but it's not good. Uh, but uh, it, it seems to work, and it lasts apparently. And she wrote like these French pieces, pièces pièce françaises, and they are much better. But nobody's playing that. It, so it also tastes, you know, it's taste. Now I've got some just short little questions. You may give a short answer, okay, or may not. <laughs> Is there something that you believe that other people disagree with? Wow, that's a good one. Yes, but maybe there's a short answer, but I, I have to think long about it. <laughs> think long, answer short. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, maybe there's something that bothers me a little bit sometimes, and also during this Congress, is I'm not sure if everybody agrees with putting intonation as the first priority. I'm not sure if that everybody agrees me, with me about that. <laughs> And uh, I think, yeah, we should, we should, our instrument is too easy. And that's why it's very easy to play out of tune. And um, it's a bit shocking sometimes to, 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 to hear that people are, yeah, that's maybe their last um, worry or something. Okay. <clears throat> But maybe people, I hope that people are disagreeing with me and that they're starting to work on it then. <laughs> Yeah. If you just had one piece that you could play now forever, nothing else, yeah. what piece would that be? Prelude à l'après-midi d'un phone by Claude Debussy in the transcription with piano. What is it about that piece? This piece is, uh, one of, is maybe one of the top five um, uh, best pieces, for me at least, in the whole literature. And I know it very well. I heard it in many situations. And um, then I got that one moment I was flying to the United States. I was going to Boston for, uh, well, to Bloomington, I think. It doesn't matter. For a masterclass. And I was listening to, uh, to the radio on the, on the headphones. And uh, it was James Galway presenting his own choice of music. And then he pre and we were going I like up. And he was presenting his version of Prelude à la Prémédie d'un phone with piano that he was playing. So And then I thought, Jesus Christ, I have to 
play this. Mm -hmm. This is, and I felt listening to this, this is soprano uh, uh, range. There's maybe a high, high A flat, the highest note. I, I didn't hear it. I don't have a perfect hearing, but I could hear it was not going too high because it's shrill. I don't like that for that music, especially not. So uh, I was coming home, bought the music, Samazai uh, um, transcription. And I, I, I wrote it down. I wrote with pen <laughs> on an old paper. I, I'm very bad with computer. So I just wrote it down. And I was reading the piece. And because I heard it so many times, I could play it from memory immediately. I, I, we went to Evo. I went to Evo, uh, my, my pianist at the time. And we started to pro play it in programs. And yeah, that is maybe the most beautiful music I've ever played. And the other is um, Quartet by Ravel, String Quartet by Ravel. If I, have to, if I can choose two, <laughs> String Quartet by Ravel. A backup but, piece. Yeah. Yes, backup. <laughs> and then, of course, Aurelia version. Yeah. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend your time? Oh, you have good questions. Um, few things. I would... Uh, I would maybe do a little bit of overblowing, this kind of uh, F and then low, low B flat fingering, that the F stays the F and then you find your intonation. Uh, then I think I would, it depends on if I have a program to, to, to prepare. Yeah, I would maybe practice two or three pages of that program. I would take the alto saxophone, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's not very uh, spectacular, but that's what I would do. Uh, but uh, and then I would not have any hour anymore in my whole life. Is that what you want to know? No, okay. Every day. No, sometimes I, an hour is for me. Sometimes and with little kids, an hour is what you get. You know? Yeah, you, I know. So yeah. you you try to fill it as well as you can. Choose yeah. wisely. Yeah, and then of, co of course it's, it's better to do maybe two or three pages really thoroughly than the whole piece of playing through. That actually also doesn't really work. Yeah. Who would you consider to be one of the greatest contributors to the saxophone? Secret Russia. I don't like his playing very much. I don't like the style of his playing. But without him, I think we would maybe not even sit here because our position in classical music would be way less important. We wouldn't have Iber, Glasunov, uh, Martin. We would not have like maybe 80 or 80% or of the standard repertoire. We would not have. We would have all the French pieces, of course. But I'm not sure if people want to listen to that all the time. And I think the other pieces, they are still played. Glasunov, I still play that. Iber, maybe not Spidi, because it's great. Martin still played. It is a very important 20th century composer. He got the piece from this guy, you know? It's fantastic. Um, so in this respect, yes, it is Russia. And I don't know, classical saxophone, right? Classical, not jazz. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't mind. Well, if it was jazz, who would you say? Charlie Parker. Yeah, Charlie Parker. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Mule has given us like just a great easygoing way of playing the instrument you know like just blowing and finding this kind of forcing very easily and very beautiful and natural and um 
always kind of in tune, you know, great. I don't really always agree with what he's doing musically. It's, of course, it's really the, the style of playing from another period. But just that. If we learn from mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Oh, yeah. I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and of course, there is one person that I didn't mention. Uh, because, um, uh, But maybe he's even in what he's actually combining what Rusher and Mule were having separated as Londex. He has this, um, he played fantastically and he also did a lot for the repertoire. But, um, and maybe he did the most, like in quantity, but maybe not always the quality. Also in the playing, maybe also not always the quality. But uh, yeah, the, the, I would say those three people uh, for classical saxophone and for jazz is Charlie Parker. Yeah. So with the mistakes, if you do make a mistake, how do you cope with that mistake when it happens? Uh, thank you, Lord. I'm a, I'm a human being. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. Animals don't make mistakes. Only so I'm a human Thanks. being. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's 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 yeah. I don't want it, but when it happens, it's also fine because then you 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 got that, and then is maybe time to to start to enjoy yeah yeah i heard you play a concerto the other night you've played probably hundreds of times with orchestra 200 maybe yeah what do you do before you walk on stage to make sure you're in the best state of mind uh that's a good question because i really had to deal with that this time um, I tried to listen to the live stream of Belgium France <laughs> football game, <laughs> but when I was doing that, I got very nervous. <laughs> so I, thought, I should not do that. I need I need silence. I don't play a lot, and I'm just waiting, 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 and building up and building up. I feel my uh, my my oh maybe it's eighty or ninety or maybe now it's hundred or. If I play Martin Ballade, it's 120 uh, uh, minimum. This is such a tricky piece to start. And this time, I was a bit kind of sick. Ears were kind of closed, like today. A uh, little nervous, only a little. Uh, so, I don't know. I just... I was just waiting, and I saw people, you know, in the in the in the break from from the orchestra. And okay, still not my time. So I tried to um, to control my biological clock. But then when I went on the stage, I felt incredible, a lot of positive energy, and I knew who I was, whose piece I was playing. I I, I saw the people. I felt, you know, so okay, let's do it. You know, and if I make a mistake, they know what kind of mistake it is, and. I don't like it, but, you know, and it, it gave me a, and it actually was more positive experience than I expected. Could you give your younger self a piece of advice that you would have, have liked to have heard? You know what I think? I don't think that I wanted advice then, or maybe I wanted advice, but not the kind of advice that I would be able to give myself now. And that's, that's tricky because then maybe I don't teach in the right way. <laughs> you talked before about 
experiencing life while you're a student? I mean, did you did you do that or did you lock yourself in your practice room too much? No, not lock, but I was kind of obsessed, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was kind of obsessed. And maybe that's a good point, yeah. But, you know, it's, you can do what you can do. You cannot, I, I, I was not an adventurer in another way. I was like, this is my thing. And there was an adventurer. Um... Well, there is one thing, don't worry, be happy. And um, yeah, and uh, no no guts, no glory. But th that already happened. But sometimes it had to be done in a little bit of a forced way. And I would like to be more relaxed. Uh, so, so yeah, my advice to my younger self would, would be relax and maybe work on that instead of yeah, just uh, neglecting it. Now, finally, you have made such a huge contribution to the saxophone and it continues to this day. What do you see for yourself in the next 10, 20 years? Good question. Um, and actually, this is kind of uh, developing at the moment in a way that I didn't really expect it some time ago. So you never know what's going to happen. But finding new music. Have, I have a new pianist, a Belgian guy that I like very much, and we have very good communication about what kind of projects we want to do. We do the music and architecture project at the moment, working on that. Um, actually, I w would like to play more with orchestra because I think that's something that I can do and that I didn't do a lot lately. And maybe something that, uh, yeah, if I have still, I don't know how many years, well, I'm 58, maybe if I'm still kind of 10 years, I would like to take the gamble and see if I can get into that circuit again. Although it's a circuit which is kind of closed and with managers and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you need someone to bring you somewhere. And I don't really like lobbying and networking and things like that. But I could feel, uh, uh, when was it, Tuesday, that when I'm well prepared that I can do something with in this medium like being a soloist with an orchestra and you know embracing them and embracing the audience I think yeah that's actually really precious and there are maybe not so many people who do that in the same way and I think maybe I should do that and maybe I should and uh, maybe I can play rhythm speed more often maybe I can do old stuff that I did before or maybe find new comp compositions because actually it was really rewarding to do that. And uh, yeah, I, I felt good. Great. Arno, yeah. thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you. And it's been a pleasure again to hear you play. Yeah. And f uh, uh, likewise. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great piece. Good luck. Thanks very much. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links, and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Zach's show.